The Money Podcast by best-selling author of Money, Rob Moore, dives into how to make, manage, and master money. How to know more, make more, and give more. How to save, invest, and raise money. The Money Podcast is for anyone who wants to make more money in a job, profession, or passion. For money masters and money disasters. They say money doesn't make you happy. Rob says it does. Hi, it's Rob Moore here. Now, this is a very exclusive episode. I don't think you'll find anything like this on the internet where I've managed to get together billionaires and a few 100 millionaires thrown into the mix. People I've met personally, I've been lucky enough to be mentored by or I've interviewed. This is free advice from 100 millionaires or billionaires. We do many billionaires, many 100 millionaires and many disruptive entrepreneurs. So let's go now with the billionaire and 100 millionaire interview. I think you will love it. I feel like what I've learned in business is a lot of people are expecting that when they make a certain amount of money or get to a certain level in business, all their problems will go away. You know, like when I get here, life will be just what they want. And my experience in business has not been that. It's been that the more successful I've become, I just get bigger problems, bigger challenges, bigger disruptions. And this year has been our best year. We're up 32% and we're into our 13th year. So I understand that's not always that easy to do in a marketplace where there's a bit of fear around. You own to lease? Is that what you do? You have leased properties? Um, I'm talking about my training business, not, okay. not our property. Okay. That's not even including our, our property companies. Um, but I've had probably the hardest year of my life, if I'm honest. My dad's really ill. My mum's really struggling with it. Um, we've, we've had, because of certain growth areas of our business, it's also caused these blindsided problems that we've, we, we could never have predicted. Um, and so my question to you is, as someone who has grown loads of businesses and made loads of money and been very successful, you must have had some really big freaking challenges. Um, how do you put your game face on and deliver every day when there's a load of shit going on in the background in your life? Really hard. You have to compartmentalize. Really, really hard. Really hard. You have to compartmentalize. Well, someone gave me advice years ago in Boston, 30 years ago. They said the only way to do it is you have to take every problem. You have to avoid, alter, or accept. You have to make a decision. You're going to avoid that problem totally, and you're going to put it over here. Yeah. You're going to accept it and recognize you can't do anything with it or you're gonna attack it and change it. Mm. So if it's not worth attacking to change, then you're down to two. And if you can't accept it, it's just something that you just can't accept as a human, that, that problem bothers you so much, then you're just gonna have to say, I'm gonna avoid it for now and I'll come back to it. So you, I just do the avoid, alter, or accept it all the time. Now, mm. and, and, and I avoid probably more than I should. Yeah. You know, and it comes back worse mm. than it was if, yeah. if you had dealt with it head on, but you don't have enough time. Mm. So you have to compartmentalize. Yeah. Okay. Some, people, some people are good at it, some can't. Some carry everything with them. Yeah. No matter how what the size of it is, they just carry it with them all the time. Mm. That's a bad habit. That's a really bad habit. Yeah. I think it maybe depends a bit on your personality type as well. Um, you know, people I know use, some people... people personalities as an excuse too. Mm, I mean, okay. some people like to... Point, whine maybe. about everything and yeah know, it's their personality it's not their personality just shut up yeah okay so let me explain that a bit further um some people are kind of the wear their heart on their sleeve kind of people or emotional or empaths whatever you want to call it i mean i don't like yeah, making yeah. stereotypes yeah, but yeah, you yeah. know some people definitely yeah. feel others pain yeah. take on people's yeah 
Um, and then there are others who are more self-controlled, logical, etc. So I guess that's what I meant by personality types. Um, so each one of those personalities should be in the right career that fits into that personality type. Yeah. So when you mix the wrong personality with the wrong career, maybe that you, you get more, more of a problem. I don't know. But I found in my life, when I'm forced by someone else or a part of myself to do something I don't enjoy, I can burn out pretty easy and quick. When I'm doing what I love, I can stay up all night doing it and I can not eat and not sleep and I don't burn out. And, you know, there's the studies of the people who were up all night at Harvard University. You could see the odd light on at three in the morning and they may be the masters and geniuses of the world. So what's your theory on burnout? Because it has become a little bit rife in the entrepreneur's world. There's a lot of people on social media, certainly in the, in the America space, talking about hustle and grind and doing, you know, 20 hour days for 20 years to be your overnight success, which I personally don't agree is sustainable or holistic so what's your your take on on burnout and that little ramble i've just made well there's there's a whole chapter in the 5am club that has really helped entrepreneurs and has disrupted this whole idea about grinding and you ask very kindly you know what's my theory i prefer to just go to the science what the science um, and especially a lot of the great work of the energy project says is the most productive people um, what makes them great is their ability to recover. What makes the best athletes the best athletes is their ability to regenerate and refuel. And the, the most productive entrepreneurs are not the ones who work uh, like marathoners. They are the ones who work like sprinters. Right. There's a, a concept I teach called the five great hour concept. And I, I teach the billionaires that I mentor and the, the people who come to me from around the world for coaching. What I teach them is how to structure their lives so they only work five hours a day. Because here's the key, and I, I, you know, I, I believe you know this to be true, Rob. Most people can spend 12 hours grinding and hustling and get very little work done. Mm -hmm. we're, not, we're not paid to do fake work. We're not paid to play with our phones. We're not paid to chit chat. We're not paid to scratch our stomachs and surf the internet. The, the real titans of industry are paid to do real work. And after four or five hours of sweaty, heroic, genius grade work, you've got more done than in five hours than most, most people get done in in two or three weeks mm. and so i would say that the real art of being a high performance entrepreneur is learning how to work brilliantly and intensely with monomaniacal focus when you work and then learning how to recover so that you replenish what i call in the 5am club the five assets of genius your mental focus your physical energy, your personal willpower, your original talent, and your daily time. Yeah, because I see a lot of people just generally, oh, I never do any, any business when there's one I don't like, oh, I don't like this, I don't like that. They look at them, they don't like the way they look, they don't like the way they dress. And I think actually, maybe you should be a bit more open-minded at that and forget whether you like them or don't like them because that's your own prejudgments. And just figure out what they're good at and what they're not good at. So again, going back to pitching and business, so it depends where you are in the life cycle of a business. So. If you're a startup, literally you're going to be sat in a room together, literally in a bedroom almost, or your kitchen table, you've got to be able to get on and work together. Yeah. 
If you're buying out a utility company with 100 years of cash flows and you can understand the regulatory framework and the demand schedule where it's going to go, it doesn't really matter if the whole management team disappeared off the smoke the right. day after you close your investment deal. Because you're not you're looking at the fundamentals of the business, clearly the CEOs makes a difference, but it doesn't make as much of a difference as if in your tiny startup, your management team all decide one day to go and join a kibbutz. Yeah. So you've got a problem. And there's everything in the middle of those two. Or go and sit on the toilet. Or go and sit on the toilet, yeah. Exactly, <laughs> or lock myself in the bog. So, and there's, and there's everything between those two in terms of your management team is, do you need to get on with them? Yeah. Do they need to, are they fully rounded? Do you need to um, build on that team with different skill sets and yeah. put people in? You know, you see investment funds often put in um, non-execs or chairs that understand the industry. Mm. So it's partly governance, it's partly expertise, partly mentoring, but yeah. the institutions kind of do that in an institutional way. Yeah. Okay. What are the commonalities of the worst pitches you've seen? Like if you could say the top three things that you see all the time that you just shudder at. So one is they haven't done the homework. Right. So they pitch something to you so that you're not, you're not interested in. So right. someone pitch, oh, people pitch me all the time and say, right, what I've got is, I don't come from a random idea. Um, the property is a good example. I don't really do property. Maybe I should. Talk about it later. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but, um, I won't pitch I'm sure you, you can help yeah. me. But, you know, it'll be something that I'm just not interested in. Wind farms. Yeah. Good one. Um, so if you do your homework, you can work out, broadly speaking, mm. what I'm interested in. There's no point handing me on social media or emails to try yeah. and get me to do something that I've just got no interest in or expertise in whatsoever. Yeah. So often people haven't done their homework. Mm-hmm. And the worst case is always when they, people, I don't care if someone's nervous. I don't, like I said, it's TV, right? You don't care if someone's nervous. You don't I guess care, you can see through that. You don't you? care if someone doesn't really know the numbers particularly well. You can, yeah. do, you can go around that and follow up later and do due yeah. diligence. You can't on TV because they're standing in front of you. You don't really care about that stuff. But if they pitch to you, and you do not understand the core proposition of why, what's the product, who's the customer, why they're going to buy it, for example, or who they are, and it hasn't been communicated, that's a terrible pitch. Yeah. And that's very, very hard to come back from. Yeah. Do you see on the Dragon's Den a few times, you know, the clashes, the personalities that get a bit argumentative or whatever. Is that just sort of TV fluffery or does that happen quite a lot? No, the so Dragon's Den is quite interesting. So I, I think Dragon's Den is the business, as you know, it's hard to make, make televisual. Yeah. So Dragon's Den, I, I still believe, is it's the best representation of business on TV, although it's very much early stage startups and angel investment. Yeah. Because you know, what would happen on Dragon's Den is somebody would be on TV and they maybe start crying or we'd catch them out on their P&L or didn't understand what their gross profit margin was. And then we say, oh, we're out. So everyone goes, well, the Dragon's Den invest because you know, Brian or Melanie didn't understand his numbers. And you'd be like, well, no, we didn't invest because they're actually asking us to invest using a convertible instrument in a subsidiary of a Canadian um, licensing or royalty-based business or franchise. Yeah. Now, that is not TV. You just switch off and go, of course, and, watch, yeah. go and watch Gogglebox. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so you just switch off. It's too, yeah. too boring, too complicated, too legal. Yeah. You wouldn't understand that. So what they have to do on Dragon's Den is find within, you know, sort of almost sort of the journalistic credibility in a way yeah. is find a storyline that kind of works and they follow that storyline so it's real there's no prepping you don't know who they are when i was in dragon's den literally i turned up there it was like hello 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 sit in a chair bit of makeup because yeah. i needed it <laughs> bit of makeup boom they come out that's right, it yeah. off you go yeah that was it so yeah. that's real and i think that 
I still think that, and I'm working on this myself, actually, when I talk about it separately, is about it needs to be moved social media, though. It needs to? Moved social media. There's got to be a way of, because of the nature and the power of the internet and democratising this stuff, there's got to be a way of creating a slightly different format, that's the right word, of <clears throat> that experience yeah. and bringing it together right. and doing it, doing it online. You got to a point where you said, I don't need any more money. Yeah. So I'm going, to, I'm going to give this a bit of context. So apparently there's all these American studies that have been done that says once you get to $70,000, you know, the happiness above that is, is kind of um, marginal or minimal. Right. I don't agree with that because no. I don't think $70,000 is enough to live. Okay. And it's £35,000 to put my two kids through private school. <laughs> so how much money for you was enough? Oh, I, I can't put a number on it. Um, more than $70,000 a yeah, year? <laughs> yeah, much more, I guess. But, you know, 20 years ago, I mean, it's public record, you, you know, we sold the business for $290 million. Mm. So that was enough. Yeah. Well, had it been enough before that sale? I hadn't thought about it. No. But, and I went to see, because I'd become really interested in Andrew Carnegie, who was a Scotsman, left Scot Scotland when he was nine years old, mm. Um, because his mum and dad were in poverty. They couldn't make ends meet yeah. in Dunfermline. And they jumped in a ship, ended up in Pittsburgh in America. And Carnegie, very long story short, founded US Steel, became the richest man in the world. Mm. Wow. Yeah. Um, so I went and I knocked on the door of the president of the Carnegie Corporation of New York. You know, I just knocked on the door. And I said, is the president in? And they said, well, who are you? And I said, well, I'm Tom Hunter from Scotland. I've, I've got a story. And, and so went, well, you've got a story, but you don't have an appointment. I said, no, <laughs> but I can wait. Yeah. <laughs> and he didn't, he didn't keep me waiting too long. And, and the president's name still is Vartan Gregorian. And a very long story short, he became my philanthropic mentor mm -hmm. just because I knocked on his door and he's yeah. one of our trustees. Mm. And, and he basically said, okay, Tom, I've listened to your story. And he said, the first thing is, that amount of money sh shouldn't really be in one person's hand. Mm. I said, well, you're mad. You know, I've worked 18 hours a day, seven days a week, 14 years to, to do this. Mm. And you gotta go and find your purpose. Mm. So it's all about confusing, you know. I thought, well, perhaps just to make more money. Mm. But I had, I'd satisfied all my material goals. And listen, it's okay having material mm. goals, you know. My first material goal was a Porsche 911 Guards Red nine, um, Carrera. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's fine. Mm. But then you can only drive one car at a time. Mm. And then, you know, there's a house and a boat and all the rest of it. Whatever it is, and it's each individual's different, that's, that's fine. Mm. But after you've did all that, then what? Yeah. And... Therefore, the purpose then I found was our foundation mm. and trying to, trying to make a positive difference. Yeah. So we still make money. I still love business. I still like the challenge of making money, but the money flows to our foundation. Mm. Okay, great. So um, I've got some good friends who've sold businesses for big lumps of money like yourself. And I'm um, talking to them. There seems to be like a, a mixed 
reaction to how they sold it. So I'm good friends with um, Neville Wright who um, created Kitty Care and sold it. Yep. And he said after he sold it, he felt awful and it was one of the worst days of his life. And he didn't expect to feel like that. Yep. Um, and then Morrison's ran it into the ground and blah, 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 which, yep. you know. Um, how did you feel when you sold? Yeah, well, I mean, it had been my baby, you know, and the people I worked with were my friends and this team and we were successful and we were taking on the world and we started, you know, from nothing mm. and we built Europe's biggest independent sports retailer. I mean, it was amazing. It, it, it was my life. Mm. And um, so, yeah, um, it, and we'd also created a lot of jobs in my local community in Scotland, mm. which I kind of knew were going to disappear. Right. So, yeah, it was very, very mixed feeling. Mm. On the one hand, I genuinely felt I had taken it as far as I could take it. Because remember, this, the skills an entrepreneur had of starting a business in the back of a van and, and running it when it's seven and a half thousand people. And, you know, that would be quite rare to have those skills. Mm. And I, I, was, I was challenged in that I thought I'd taken it as far as I could. Yeah. And I, I genuinely believed that. Mm. And um, therefore, I knew it was right to sell it, but I knew I was maybe letting people down. So yeah, very mixed mm. feelings. And was it a strategic thing, a long way out, going to build this business to sell, or did no, you, I'd, no? I never thought about it. No. No. Did you just get a random offer one day, or did you think one day, I can't take this anymore, as no. in take it further? No, the phone went, and it was my biggest competitor, right? which was Dave Whelan, yeah. JJB. And he said, Tom, are you thinking of selling? And I said, I mean, we were big competitors. Mm. And I, said, <laughs> I can't imagine what you first said. And yeah. I said, no, I'll, I'll buy you. You're not buying yeah. me. <laughs> yeah. And he went, think about it. He, he had gone public. He was smaller than me, but, yeah. he, you know, he had the funds. Mm. And it didn't take me long, actually, to go from never having thought of it to going, no, no, I'll buy you, you know. Yeah. He would not buy yeah. me. Um, to going, well, maybe. Because then the possibilities began to... Well, what could I do? You know? mm. And how that sales process, which is often very messy for a business, isn't it? Because you still got to sell stuff and yeah. deliver and set it, up for it, sale. It didn't take that long. Really? Dave was very good, um, very honourable. Yeah. And he got on with it, you know. Mm. Mm -hmm. And so what is not long? Is it? Um, it's maybe a four month period. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Very quick. Mm. Had, had you, was your business pretty well systemised then? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, we had a good good business. Mm. Yeah, great people. And I guess if your competitor's buying it, he's watched you for decades. So, yeah. yeah, I mean, because I know a lot of people actually set up a business and their plan is to exit selling to Google or a competitor of theirs yeah. or whatever. We don't really like those businesses no. because, because, you know, who can if that's see the that, only outcome? Who, who, who can see that far ahead? You yeah. Know? yeah. Predicting the future is quite difficult. Yeah. And also, like, surely a business should be about creating value. Uh, it should be out making something that matters. Yeah. Um, making a little dent as opposed yeah. to I'm just setting this thing up to flog it in a few if years. If it's just about the money, yeah, it's questionable. Yeah. I'm fascinated by growth. I think that, you know, as entrepreneurs, we seem to be obsessed by growth. It's also a bit of a paradox because ch chasing growth for the sake of growth can be somewhat of an empty pursuit, yet we can't help it. Uh, and, um, you know, I think, was it about 150 million, roughly the size of the business when you joined and now it's 1.1 yeah. 1 .1 billion. Yeah. So you must have been 
very partly responsible for that major growth and the globalization of it. So can you sort of talk us through how you grew Reed? Well, I think it's really important you know, to be growing, I suppose. I mean, our strategy is very simple. It's to grow organically. So we haven't grown it by acquisition. And I say to people in our business, there are only two ways you can grow organically. One is through exceptional service and the other is through innovation and new ideas. Right. So that's, yeah. that, those are the two ways we've grown. The, the, to, talking through each in turn, the exceptional service. If you can deliver a good service to people that they appreciate, they will come back and they will also recommend you to other people. Yeah. So we've done, I hope, a lot through that. Yeah. And we take that very seriously. And then, as I mentioned before, an idea a day, innovation is really a big part of our DNA as, mm-hmm. an, as an entrepreneurial family and business. Yeah. So we're always looking for new ideas and we're always asking people for their ideas. Yeah. And, um, and we will try new ideas. So some of those ideas have succeeded and some have failed. Mm. But the combination over time has led us to where we are today. Right. And we will continue to pursue that strategy. So maybe we don't grow as fast as some people who bolt on other businesses. And but, you know, like you, a tree that grown. We tried it once and we weren't uh, very good at it. <laughs> and, but you know, we, all, we all had a bad date one day. We yeah, didn't yeah. stop going back there. <laughs> no, that's true. But we found a better way of doing it for right. us that suits us. Well, I suppose those, more seriously, um, if you're an entrepreneur or run your own business, if you're starting to have to raise money to make acquisitions, you are going to dilute your shareholding. Right. To a point at which you might not control that business. But can't you uh, acquire through cash flow just by every few years? By yeah, potentially you can. Yeah, you can if you yeah. feel that's better than growing your own operations. But we chose through cash flow to reinvest in our business. Yeah. So you right. could. So you, you raise external. So, so I'm, I'm sort of nervous about debt yeah. because I, I, I'm nervous about losing control. Mm. So that's why I partly pursue this strategy and wouldn't go on an acquisition spree. Yeah. The other thing that's worth mentioning, in our sector, in service businesses, they're all people businesses. Mm. You can buy a recruitment business and everyone who works in it can walk out the door the next yeah. day. Yeah. It's not like you're buying a factory somewhere with the capital and machinery yeah. that's bolted to the floor. Yeah, you can't so, the people to the <laughs> floor. No, you certainly can't. No. So that's high risk. Yeah. And if you look at the history of acquisitions, I think, what is it, 80% lose value for shareholders? Wow. So if you're your own, if you're an owner manager, you don't want to lose value for your shareholders. No. It's hurting yourself and your family. Yeah. So you have to be really good at acquisitions. Some people are. Yeah. But over, if you look at the long-term history of business, most acquisitions result in shareholder value going down, right? Not up. And what what you say you tried it and it didn't work for you? What didn't work when you tried it? We bought bought a healthcare recruitment business. Well, it was like twenty years ago almost now, and and it was a perfectly good business. But the market changed. People moved on, and you know when I look back at it, I thought, well, we could have done better with that money. Yeah. So we still have a healthcare business, right? And and it, and it's perfectly successful. But it, we had one before. This made it bigger, and we're probably back to where we were before. Yeah. So I don't think it was. It didn't. It didn't carry us forward in our journey. Yeah. And when you say organic growth, you said you gave us the two ways to grow organically. Does that mean you're not spending on marketing or, or just... Oh, no, 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 it doesn't. Yeah. So, so, yeah, I mean, organic growth means you grow like a tree from yeah. the ground up. And, and those are the only ways. I, I mean, if you've got other ways of growing organically that you can share with me... I'll I want on your podcast. I want to, I want to <laughs> yeah. know them. Yeah. I want to know them. But yeah. no, we spend a lot on marketing. So we reinvest in the business all the time. Yeah. But if, if you, the analogy might, that I've used in the past, it might be if you want more orange juice... There are only two ways of getting it. You can squeeze your oranges harder to get more juice out of the oranges you've already got. Yeah. Or you can plant some more orange groves. Yeah. So the, so, so the service helps you get more out of what you've got. But the ideas and innovation is all about planting new orange groves. Yeah. 
give you more orange juice. Mm. So the word priority creates this ego conflict. Yes, it does. Right? So you don't need to use it. No. There can just be harmony. Yeah. And you know, we, we, we think about things, even like work-life balance, it, it becomes these two things in conflict. Yeah, you separate them. Yeah. Why do you have to separate them? They don't need to be, and I think the same with my, with the relationship dynamics. It's like my girlfriend's starting her business as well. I don't feel threatened by the, she doesn't need to call me, or I don't need to know who the priority is. Mm. We're, we're in this together and there's we're trying to create harmony, yes. right? And um, I think that's a much better way. I've, I've been with my ex-girlfriend, if I'd used the word priority, it would have just, you know, it's an unnecessary conflict. Yeah. I think the certain maturity um, and self, sort of self-security and self-esteem, you don't feel so threatened yeah. by someone's ambition. Mm. I, when I was younger, I thought, I don't need fucking anyone else. I don't need a girlfriend, <laughs> family, I don't need anything. But I was like 18 to, I'd say 22 or 23. And then the first time someone came to me and said they wanted to buy my business, and I went home that day and Googled uh, on Rightmove and Autotrader the car and house that I could buy with that amount of money when I was 24. I felt so terribly empty at the thought of sitting in that, that Lamborghini and pulling up to this mansion. Uh, and I thought, where, where does this go? This really like horrible anticlimactic moment in my life where I was like, someone's just offered me 25 million. And like, what am I gonna go do with it? I'm gonna go buy this massive fucking house and this car. And then what? And I, I was living in a seven bedroom house with a tennis court, which I was a fucking, it was dreadful idea when I was 20, 23, 24. And I was like, well, this is so inconvenient, so impractical. And that's the moment that I started to realize that really my whole programming, which came from social media and being a broke kid with bankrupt parents, that was the only black kid in an all white school and feeling this sense of like constantly trying to feel, I guess, build self-worth in like, you know, chasing pleasure, thinking it was happiness, finally dawned on me that if I carried on with this pursuit of just like material stuff and like Lamborghinis and cars, I have a Lamborghini Aventador, by the way. Oh, so. <laughs> just, yeah. No, Maybe I shouldn't. No, but it's not, it's, it's why you buy the Lamborghini. It's, and that's the thing, it's why yeah. you buy it. So my 18-year-old Steve wanted to buy a Lamborghini because it would make me yeah. even happier. Yeah. Like it would scale my happiness, right? Yeah. I buy nice things now, mm. but I don't buy them under the pretense that they're going to make me feel better about myself, Yeah. right? I feel better, yes, but not about yourself. Not about that's myself. Different, yeah. yeah, not not give me self-worth because yeah. the anticlimax of when it doesn't, it doesn't make you, doesn't resolve your, your bullshit or your, your unhealed trauma yeah. is I think even more dangerous than the unhealed trauma. The anticlimax, I really believe, messes people yeah. up. And how long you pursue that climax to then have the anticlimax. Like the longer you pursue the fantasy. Mm. So I've got good friends who sold their companies for 75 million, 100 million, 200 million. And three of them said to me, it was the worst day of their life. 100%. I mean, and they, were, and they would have dreamed of that for 15 years. 100%. And seeing their company ripped to bits by, you know, and then being sold for 5% of its worth five years later or something like that. Because what, what I think they'd mistaken, and this is probably what I'd mistaken, is they thought they were building, um, what, what they'd created was a ton of money, but what they'd created in themselves was like a ton of purpose every day. Yes. It was like the reason to get out of bed and enjoy what you do that day. And to exchange that for money, this is what I felt when I was 24. I was like, this, I, this I'm person I won't name, this company wants to buy my company, and what I'm gonna do is I'm gonna exchange my purpose for 25 million. And I'm looking mm. at this 25 million and thinking, like, the, like, what am I gonna do with it to, to recreate that thing that I've already got? Mm. I, 
like, and I, I don't think I can buy that thing I've already got. I don't know how I buy it. So it felt like a really bad deal. And I was like, what number would feel like a good deal? I don't think there's a, so the, the reprogramming I went, underwent at 25 years old was, um, okay, I am in pursuit of growth and ambition and I do want to grow a big you know, company, but why? And I, I spent the whole year just getting really down to the, the reason why. Yeah. And that means that when we go public and all these things, I'm happy because the reason it means something to me isn't an ex extrinsically motivated, empty one. Yeah. I'm not, when, I, when I, we sign a big client now or, to, or we go public or whatever, or when I buy some, a nice like Louis Vuitton bag and like this fucking, I buy lots of this fucking six of them downstairs. <laughs> like, I'm not buying it because of extrinsic reasons, because of other people. I'm buying it in and of itself because I enjoy it. Yes. Irrespective of anyone fucking knowing that I'm doing it or having it. Yeah. And that has changed my life. Um, that's completely changed my life. Just understanding why it's that I genuinely think it's the single most important thing is to get to the root cause of why you, you're doing what you, what you do every day and why you want the things you want. Yeah. My friends are so fucking miserable because what well, this one friend in particular, multi-billionaire, right? Um, comes from a very wealthy background and he has so many sports cars outside his mansion. Guy's fucking horribly miserable. Mm. Upstairs in his house is six, seven million pounds worth of designer clothes. One of the most miserable people I know, and he just keep on going because he doesn't know why he's um, doesn't know why he's buying the, the fucking Louis Vuitton. He doesn't yeah. know why he's buying it. He 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 thinks he's buying it to to recreate some false validation that his parents didn't give him growing up. So he thinks that if I buy one more Louis Vuitton bag, I'll get validation. Except, but you know. But that's like a, that's an empty hole. It's just a bucket, never, bucket with a hole in it, isn't it? It's a treadmill keep as well. Yeah, keep pouring water in it. Hamster wheel, and then it's like a drug addiction because you need a bigger thing to reach yeah. that same feeling. Mm. And it's just never-ending misery as far as... They call it the hedonistic treadmill, yeah. the stoic people, and they... Um, mm. And it's just, it's, it's a path to misery. And um, I had to reprogram myself because we've all been brainwashed. If you, if you have Instagram, or you have a TV, or you have a magazine, you have been undoubtedly brainwashed deeply, your values are fucked. So you have to un unprogram yourself mm. and fuck yourself. Mm. Yeah. Unfuck yourself. You have to. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we really have nothing other than maybe uh, some of our genes and those genes are, you know, as you start to look at in a bigger picture, as we grow up, you know, make up about 1% of who we are and everything really comes from nurturing from the time after we are born. So to me, life, is the biggest mentor you have. So as I say, the life never stops teaching. It's just sometimes we stop learning. Okay. Um, do you think the fact that, because I think there are a lot of very successful people who aren't maybe native, you know, they, I hate the word immigrant, but that's what people say. Some wildly successful people like yourself, like maybe Arnold Schwarzenegger, like Gary Vaynerchuk, like whoever, you know, have had a harder upbringing. Do you think that, that has helped you become such a successful entrepreneur? You know, I really don't believe so. And let me tell you why I say that. You know, obviously it's easy for someone to see that, you know, you are you have a hunger and you have a desire and you want to go out and, you know, show people what you can do. But the trick really is, can we create a structural change in the society? That means it doesn't matter where you are in your life cycle. You continue to aim for the moonshots. So if you look at, and obviously my story is, uh, we can talk, you know, we can talk about that. But really, to me, what I'm most proud of are really our children. 
and you look at three of our children, they grew up in extremely affluent family. And there's just no way I could hide the fact that they didn't grow. But the fact, if you look at them, what they're doing, they're moving the humanity forward. Our oldest is 28 year old. And if you just Google him, his name is Ankur, A-N-K-U-R. And there is not a not a month that goes by, he's not have eight, 10 page profile on him on some magazine. Here's a kid who started Cairo Society when he was 17 years old, which became the world's largest college entrepreneurship thing. And then he graduated from Wharton. He started the company that he sold the company to Tinder. And now he's focused 100% of his effort on solving real world problem, affordable housing, student loan, senior care, child care, and think about 28-year-old kid believes that the smartest people should be working on world's biggest problems. And that's really the key is that how do we take uh, the world's biggest problem and get the smartest people to work on that? His sister, who is 24, graduated from Stanford, Stanford Mayfield Fellow, Stanford Stamp Fellow, Youth Ambassador for United Nations, and she cared about women empowerment. Guess what she does? She is now working on artificial intelligence to remove the gender bias from um, <clears throat> hiring. And the youngest one is a senior at Stanford, and he's focused 100% on how can he take the entrepreneurship to solve problems. He's graduating from Stanford this year and uh, becoming a Schwarzman scholar. That tells you that it's not a luck of one person turned out right. It's all three of them focused on changing the whether it's a women empowerment, whether it's empowering entrepreneurs or going out building relationships, is how do we take the children who grew up in affluent families, still give them those values that what matters is what you do for the society, not what you do for yourself. But are there any ways that we can develop that skill of picking the right thing? So most people are going to have a gut about what is the critical thing, but they get distracted by what they think has to get finished. And for example, in an early stage company, there's almost always only two things that matter. One is money. And number two is getting customers. And usually you don't need to do both of those at the same time. And you certainly don't need to have a great experience. You don't need to look good. You don't need to be polished. You don't need PR unless it's customer focused. It's there's a singular thing you do that gets you flow. And that's almost always where to start. And people don't because they, they care too much about other peripheral factors. They're doing things like working on their benefits. So they're working on, I mean, it's crazy the stuff I hear. Yeah. I call it uh, selling the t-shirts. That if in a pitch to me, someone even verges into the, and then when we're successful, we will. You know, <laughs> I immediately know that they're not focused because yeah. they should be spending all their time on the getting to that point, not on what happens once they get there. Yeah. OK, thanks, Mark. So um, some things that came up, which I think are really interesting. One was ideas because you started talking a lot about that. And another one I just wrote in a box was speed. So we'll start with speed. How important do you think speed is in business? A lot of people are saying that speed and first to market is really important. Of course, everything's traveling information wise at the speed of light now through fiber optics. So we can do things a lot quicker. We can crowdsource quicker. We can test ideas quicker online in communities. How important is speed? Or can you sometimes rush too much? Um, let's see. I don't believe speed for speed's sake counts. It's much more important to get it right. 
um, in my opinion. I mean, just as a perfect example, uh, you know, Netflix, like I said, was in was domestic for a long, long, long time. And we see people do or coming up, like, for example, in the UK, doing exactly what we're doing, pretty much a blatant copy. And of course, the temptation is let's get there. And they go, no, let's our model's not right in the United States yet. We still have so much more to learn here. There's plenty of time to come over and, uh, and do Netflix in the UK, for example. Yeah. Um, but the thing is, uh, I am a believer. I won't call it speed, but I'll say learning quickly. Uh, and not, not because I'm saying go fast. I'm just saying don't waste time polishing things. Mm. Just throw something up quickly um, to learn quickly. But it's not hurry, hurry, hurry. It's don't waste time polishing things. Yeah. The difference between when I started Netflix 22 years ago and now is you can do things so much faster. You know, back then there wasn't the cloud. So if you wanted to do a website, you had to build your own uh, ability to serve pages. You had to have your own servers and you didn't have a place to put them. You had them in your office. You had to do your own redundancy. I mean, all that stuff had to be in yourself. And so to test something took a long time. You know, now you can take the idea for Netflix and test it in an hour. And so you should, Mm. but not, don't try and do it in 10 minutes. That's not, I don't see any advantage in 10 minutes versus an hour versus a day versus a week even.